hadn't planned on doing this, but I thought about it during the song, uh, during that last song. Uh, some people have, have asked me about, and I think rightfully so, I appreciate it, about those lyrics uh, to God, you cannot change, yet you change everything. And uh, ZPCers, I'm, I'm very appreciative of this, are, are very thoughtful, and they think, well, wait, you cannot change to God? That's not true. Why are we singing that? That doesn't seem right, and I think it's a good question. Uh, probably, if I were writing the lyrics, I don't really write lyrics, but if I were, I probably would have said, you do not change, yet you change everything. Uh, but in the sense of, I do actually think it's probably correct in this sense, which is that God cannot change who God is. In other words, uh, if God is loving, God cannot all of a sudden just become unloving because it is actually who God is. It is the character of God. This is why God cannot change because it's simply who he is. God is a God of peace. God cannot all of a sudden not be someone of peace uh, because it would be going against his character. God is a God of grace. God cannot go against being a, a God of grace because it is simply who God is. Is. And so uh, when we begin to sing that song, if we sing that song again in the future, uh, I just want you to, I would encourage you to think about it like that. If you kind of struggle with those particular lyrics, um, to begin to think about it like that. God cannot go against this loving, graceful, peaceful God uh, whom he is. So uh, that's just uh, an extra uh, little sermon for you this morning. Um, all right, with that, we're still going to preach, uh, and so we are looking at the Gospel of Luke today once again, and now we are in the sixth chapter, so we're really picking up some speed here. Uh, the sixth chapter, we're going to look at the first 11 verses, and so here we go. This is what Luke says. One Sabbath, while Jesus was going through some grain fields, his disciples plucked some heads of grain rubbed them into, in their hands and ate them. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered, have you not read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat and gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. And on another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and taught, and there was a man there whose right hand was withered. The scribes and the Pharisees were watching him to see whether he would cure on the Sabbath so that they might find grounds to bring an accusation against him. But he knew what they were thinking. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, come and stand in the middle. He got up and stood there. And then Jesus said, to them, I ask you, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at all of them, he said to him, stretch out your hand. He did so and his hand was restored, but they were filled with fury and began discussing with one another what they might do to Jesus. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, be with us this morning as we look at this passage that you might continue to speak to us through these words. And I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen and amen. 
All right, so Luke here has compiled a couple different Sabbath stories together uh, in order to help teach us something about Jesus, uh, about the Pharisees, uh, about uh, things like the Sabbath, and perhaps even about us. In this very first scene, they're on the Sabbath day and they're walking through uh, some fields and the disciples are plucking off some grain and, and beginning to eat it. And all of a sudden, the Pharisees pop up and they, they ask, well, wait, you know, why are you doing what is illegal on the Sabbath? And I love one commentator, uh, one commentator said, because it reminded me of growing up. She said, you know, it's almost like uh, the Pharisees are here in a scene from, uh, from Hee Haw. Do you remember that scene here? This is uh, where, they would, uh, where they would just pop up out of these fields. Anyone remember that? I always thought it was the most boring show of all time, but my parents loved it. And it, it is, it's almost comical that all of a sudden the Pharisees just pop up out of nowhere and say, hey, what are you doing? Why are you doing this illegal thing on the Sabbath? It's very clear, of course, that they are trying to catch Jesus. And so how does Jesus begin to respond? Jesus begins to respond by saying, have you not read? Now we need to understand that this would have been a very personal kind of thing. It seems like a, a simple like, oh, have you not read? Oh no. The Pharisees, the scribes, they took great glory, great pride in their knowledge. And so he's almost kind of rubbing it in from the very beginning. Have you not read? Don't you remember the story about David? How he and his men, they, they went into the house of God and they took of the bread of the presence and then they ate those things. You know, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, this is kind of an interesting thing for Jesus to have brought up. Commentators say, you know, it's kind of weird because it's not really apples to apples what Jesus is doing here. Uh, first of all, of course, it's not even on the Sabbath. The David, uh, David and his men weren't doing this on the Sabbath. Secondly, David and his men were starving, right? They were gonna die. They needed to eat something. And, and, and well, you know, quite frankly, uh, these disciples, they're just kind of peckish you know, of Jesus. They were just had a little, you know, a little snack, right? So it's not really quite the same. And some commentators would even suggest, and it's actually not even that illegal what David's doing. They, he got the permission of the priest to be able to eat this. So if that's the case, then why exactly did Jesus make this comparison? And why likely would it have really annoyed the Pharisees to no end that Jesus was doing so? As I began to think about this a little more after some reading, I remembered the year 1988. Now, I was 14 years of age in 1988. I think it was probably about the first time that I started paying attention uh, to, to the presidential election. You may remember it was George H.W. Bush versus... Dukakis, Michael Dukakis, very well, right? And so here you have this election. And of course, at that same time, you had the vice presidential candidates and you had Lloyd Benson versus Dan Quayle. Some of you already know where I'm going with this. And, and, and so they had this, uh, you know, Dan Quayle, uh, I know Indiana, much in Arizona, but also an Indiana boy. So please don't be angry at me and please don't think I'm trying to get political, but I just want you to see something here. Um, uh, they had this debate and Dan Quayle, as you may remember, I'm gonna show you this video here in just a second. Dan Quayle uh, was young, 
right? Uh, now compared to, uh, 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 to others. And so he was trying to kind of fight for, you know, the fact that he wasn't so young. People said he couldn't be president uh, because he was so young. What would happen if something happened to George H.W.? This is funny because people thought then that George H.W. was really old. And compared to our, our, uh, compared to our elections these days, he was actually probably quite, quite young. Um, and so here is a quail. It's about a minute and a half. So just relax. And if you don't remember this because you were too young, uh, just try to, try to catch it. We already started it. Uh, let's restart that and hit play. You guys remember that? I remember that at 14 years of age. I remember thinking, ooh. Now why bring, you guys are still a little uncomfortable. I know he's in Indiana, but just relax. This is fascinating, and, and, and literally, it's the first thing I thought about when I began to read about this. Why? Because of the fact that this Lloyd Benson here, just don't read too much into this, is like one of the Pharisees in this moment. Because Lloyd Benson hears Dan Quayle make this comparison to obviously his friend Jack Kennedy, right? No JFK. And he says, are you kidding me? There is no way. You are no Kennedy, and the Pharisees, see, we may not catch this. When they hear Jesus say, don't you know the story about David? What would they have been thinking? Wait, are you trying to tell us that you're David? The great king of Israel? The one that we hold up on the pinnacle as being the, the everything, the, the greatest? This is when we were in our sweet spot. You think you are comparing yourself and what you're doing right here to David? And they are, of course, not going to be pleased by that kind of comparison. See, and it would be easy for us just to kind of brush right through and not see the crux, one of the most important things about what's going on here, which is that Jesus is already trying to lift himself up and the Pharisees say what you want about them, but they are the ones who are understanding already that Jesus is saying much more than what perhaps others are willing to yet begin to understand. Should I show that clip again at the, 10, at the 1045 or? Okay, all right. So then Jesus goes on. Luke tells us about another Sabbath story. This time it's in the synagogue. And he goes into the synagogue and there's a man here there with a withered right hand. Luke's the only one who tells us that it's his right hand. And there is some significance in that. As you may or may not know, um, um, it was the left hand uh, that you made yourself clean with, if you will, in that time. And the right hand you did everything else with. So you, you greeted, you gestured, you did all those things. Well, the man with the withered hand could not do that, of course. He would have had to have used his left hand instead, which means... What's significant about that is that the shame from this withered right hand would have been something that he was reminded of daily, if not hourly. There's, this is not just a physical handicap. It's not just an economic handicap. It is an emotional handicap, even a spiritual handicap. And there he is. And the Pharisees, once again, of course, they are looking forward, licking his, their chops. Is he going to heal this man on the Sabbath? Jesus knows exactly what it is that they are thinking. And I, I've never really thought about it quite so much as I have as we've been going through Luke about how connected this is to Simeon's words that, that at this point had happened about 30 years earlier where he said that he would tell the inner thoughts that this baby would know the inner thoughts and make them, uh, make them uh, known to others. And he knows exactly what the Pharisees are wondering. And so he simply asks 
them this question of whether or not it is okay on the Sabbath, whether or not it is okay on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it. Well, this is a no-win question for the the, uh, Pharisees. And so we're not told that they say anything. But what Luke does tell us, and you can kind of get a sense of the showdown at the okay corral by this, is that Jesus looked at every one of them. And you remember from last week that when Jesus looks at you, he is seeing all of you. So you can just imagine, remember Jesus, three mile an hour God, that this is a slow thing. He's not having to rush through this. He's just looking at every one of this is when I see who's sleeping or not, of them. The tension begins to rise. And then he simply looks over and says, stretch out your hand. And the man stretches out his hand and is healed. And the Pharisees at this point, they have had it. We're told that they have this fury, or Scott and Stan in the video this week says it's, it's, it's a sense of being mad. And the great thing about the word mad, of course, is it can mean not just being angry, but also almost losing your mind. They were insanely angry at this point. And so they look, they figure out, they get together and they begin to say, what can we do? We cannot continue to live with this man doing what it is that he's doing. And so they begin the works to say, we have to figure out a way that we will get rid of this Jesus. When I was looking at this passage earlier this week, one of the things that's really, I think, fairly clear about this is that this is a really easy passage for us, if you're just kind of reading through, to just skip right over and keep going. Why? Because of the fact that the Pharisees here are really hard for us to understand. I mean, it seems really weird that they get so angry. It's almost comical, really. I mean, it's it's like, wait, why why would they be so angry at the fact that he that they were eating? Why would they be so angry at the fact that um, that 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 Jesus was healing on the Sabbath? It's it's really quite. It's very easy for us just to go past and really think the moral of this story is this: Thank God we are not like them. But I'd love to give you a little bit of pause at any time when you start reading scripture and you think that the moral of the story is, thank God we're not like them, there's a really good chance that we're missing something. Because it is very few scripture that I know about that really the moral of the story is just, well, thank God we're not like them. I feel better about myself. Let me just kind of continue on with my life. Because the truth, of course, is there's something else that's going on here. And the place to begin to understand that is by beginning to understand the absolutely critical nature of the Sabbath for the Jewish people. This is really hard for us to understand. Tom Long says this, and it's true. I don't think we're trying to be judgmental. It's just that for the vast majority of us, the Sabbath doesn't mean that much. I mean, we'll do something different, right? Many of us, you've come into worship today. That's great. 
But other than that, right, we go about our daily activities. We get done what we haven't gotten done throughout the week. We get ready for the next week. We do this or that. It's a little bit different, but it's not all that different for us. So we think, well, yeah, why wouldn't you eat something off a crop during the Sabbath? That makes all the sense. Why wouldn't you heal somebody? It's just a day. But for the Jewish people, it was a wholly different day, a wholly different thing. You see, this started, one of the reasons why we did, they did the Sabbath was this, because it was this great reminder to them that they were no longer enslaved. It was this great reminder to them that they were no longer slaves of the Egyptians. He put this in, God put this in, this day of the Sabbath, to remind them that they were free, to remind them that they no longer had those chains, to remind them of who God was and what God had done and who they were. It was actually this incredibly joyful day day. It gave them their identity. The Sabbath said, this is who you are. In fact, one scholar says that when they went off to Babylon, the exiles, and when the temple uh, was raised, R-A-Z-E-D, that the Sabbath day actually became almost like the temple. This was their all in all. It was this critically important part of their faith, which means that when Jesus is getting willy-nilly about the Sabbath, When he's just like, ah, just pick some food. You're hungry, that's no big deal. Oh, let's just heal on the Sabbath. The reason why they were so upset is because actually what he's beginning to do is questioning their very identity. He is questioning their very sense of faith. This is no small thing. There's a reason why they began to get furious. And it wasn't just because they were just getting mad over silly things. They were getting mad over the thing that set them apart from everyone else, they were getting mad over the fact that, no, this is exactly who God is. How dare you mess with that? Of course, what's also interesting is the fact that this thing, the Sabbath, that was supposed to really give them great freedom and be a celebration of freedom, they had slowly but surely allowed that practice to then begin to put them into chains. And what's important for us to see, if we're going to understand what this passage has anything to say to us, it is this, that we have to begin to see that actually this is a really good thing that they are defending. This Sabbath was a beautiful practice. It was something that God had given them. It was a wonderful practice, and this is exactly what God was doing. But the problem is, of course, is that they had begun to elevate this thing until it had actually begun to take the place of God. One person said, it may have been John Calvin, I can't remember, said that our our hearts are idol factories. I love that, that we are continuing to bring up idols. And see, here's the problem. The problem is with things like the Sabbath, when we do it, we oftentimes don't even realize it's an idol. And the reason why we don't is because of the simple fact that we cloak it in this beautiful religious language. And those are the hardest idols for us to see. The most difficult idols for us to see are those things that we, that we say, well, this is from God. Therefore, anything that we argue around it, it must be okay. And we begin to think almost that we are incredibly holy because we are defending this thing. I can guarantee you the Pharisees thought that they were being incredibly God-fearing by defending the Sabbath until the cows come home because they said this is what is critically important. This And unbeknownst to them, they had begun to equate equate that with God. 
The, the analogy that's usually used around this is a bit like pointing something out to a dog. You, you know this analogy. We've seen it with uh, our little dog, Sherman. Um, um, it happens all the time. We think that there's actually something wrong with him. Uh, he doesn't seem to be able to smell very well or see very well or hear very well or do anything except for use the bathroom inside. And so... We will, though. Every once in a while, when he gets it right, we give him a treat, of course, and he loves. He's very partial to a pepperoni, and so we, we take these little pepperonis, and we throw it on the ground, and he's just like, where is this thing? And so what do we do? We point to it. It's right there. And what does he begin to do? He gets attracted by the finger. And he starts looking at the pointer. He's like, oh, there's something in there. And so he begins to bite the finger. He begins to lick at the finger. He begins to whine at the finger. The whole treasure is right here. And yet he becomes consumed by the thing that is pointing to the real treasure to which he is looking. And see, this is exactly what is happening with the Pharisees and what often happens with us, which is that we begin to be enamored by the thing to which is pointing rather than to the actual treasure. They begin to get enamored by the pointer, i.e. the Sabbath, rather than the thing to which it is pointing, which is God himself. And it's very natural. You want to know why it's natural? Because it's the thing that we can literally see. That's why the pointer things are always so, uh, so uh, alluring to us, right? You remember the whole story of the golden calf when, when uh, Moses is up on the mountain, he's up there too long, so they melt all the gold. Why? Because then they can see, they can, they can smell, they can touch the calf, and they, they love that, right? This is what happens with something like the Sabbath, because you can see, it's very clear, we have this time and all this. God sometimes is harder to kind of wrangle. We can't see or, or touch or smell. So we, so we begin to be enamored by the pointer and we'd forget that it's pointing to the greater thing, which is God. So that when anybody starts to mess with the pointer, we become furious. Now, we could keep this right here and we'd be fine. And the reason we'd be fine, again, is because we don't actually talk about the Sabbath all that much. We don't talk about the pointer all that much. So it's not fine. Ah, let them have it about the Sabbath. That's dumb. They're foolish. So let's talk about some other things. Because it's not really a good sermon unless you kind of upset people, right? <laughs> so what are the pointer? Remember, it can be any good thing that isn't Jesus any good thing can become an idol, right? So let's talk, let's start easily here. Let's talk about communion. Let's start there because I've talked about this before at another church where I served where communion became the big deal. In my first three months, right, we started, we did communion every once in a while in a different form, right? We started in tinction. Uh, we, we started doing that every once in a while. And, 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 and my, my uh, third, I think it was my second or third elder meeting, right? One of the elders got up and stormed off. He was so angry uh, that we had done, begun to do something differently and uh, getting these emails. I mean, this was, I thought, man, I, what have I done? This is a horrible vocation. And he got so angry and other people were so mad about this. And, and, and here's the thing, you know, as I continue to kind of wrestle with the communion and how we do it, this is what's fascinating to me. But it's only fascinating if you're not stuck in the middle of it. Which is that here we are, we're breaking bread. Remember, we're remembering the sacrifice that God made to us. 
We're remembering our own call in the midst of that, that we are called to sacrifice for others, right? We're remembering this call to this bond, to this body, the body of Christ in our own body. And yet in the very middle of that, we are fighting. We're fighting over this pointer that's supposed to point to how we are broken for others. And yet we're fighting over this, which is causing us not to want to be broken for others, but to have everything exactly as I want. I can guarantee you in 2,000 years, when people look at this, they'll be like, what? This is almost comical. But it's not comical when you're in the middle of it. It feels like, I can assure you, those who are fighting it, and I who was fighting it on my own side, were like, this is so important. It had become God. Or what about something else? Let's talk about community, because this is something, this is my own. Oh, I wrestle with this. I love community, and, and community is a great thing. Right, community's really important. I mean, there's a reason, again, why Jesus kind of formed this community around him. There's a reason why we have the church, all of this, right? Now, in the most beautiful sense, of course, uh, we are all kind of locked hand in hand. We're all lined up this way and we're going this direction and we're pointing to Jesus, right? And we're following the, the mission of Jesus and that is a good and right and wonderful thing. However, what I've noticed at times uh, is that, is that if, when Jesus kind of begins to kind of come back too close to us, that all of a sudden, instead of kind of, you know, moving forward with Jesus and pointing to Jesus, we, we kind of, we have this whole circle. And maybe Jesus is in there, but by and large, we're just kind of looking at each other. And, and I've said this before, you know, that the longer you look at somebody, the more things you find out you don't really like about them. And the longer you're like there, you all of a sudden you realize that you're different in some way or another. And you're like, I don't like the way that you're different. And you begin to forget about Jesus. And so that person leaves and then this person leaves. And so then eventually, and we see this in many churches, you begin to realize that actually everybody around you, you're not there because of Jesus any longer. You're there because you look the same, you talk the same, you have the same politics, the same theology, the same everything. And that's the reason why you're gone. And Jesus is completely gone. You don't need him anymore if everybody just agrees on everything. You don't need Jesus. And all of a sudden, this pointer, the community that is supposed to point to the north, south, east, and west, how everyone will come together and to the width and the, this is width, and the breadth and the depth of God and God's kingdom. All of a sudden, we've forgotten that and the community is just here for one another. Or what about Music. I can already feel an email. <laughs> this is one, it's really hard. Music is a beautiful thing. It is God given. You can just read through the scripture. It's there everywhere. Sing unto the Lord a new song. Sing unto the Lord all the earth. Sing unto the Lord, bless his holy name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. It's a pointer to God. And yet, there is oftentimes great fury when it comes to music. On the one hand, you have those, uh, I'm gonna hit both sides, so don't get annoyed yet. On the one hand, you have those who say hymns. This is clearly what God wants. And so we sing songs. Bind us together, Lord. Bind us together with chords that cannot be broken. But instead we say, bind us together, Lord. Bind us together with hymns that cannot be broken. And as long we sing, as long as you want to sing these exact same songs, then we will be bound together. But as soon as you want to sing something else that has more of a beat, cast out. 
But the songs are supposed to bring us together. But now those who like modern music, they're not that much different, let's be honest, right? We remember the song, The Blessing. Oh, we love The Blessing, right? Uh, the, I tried to sing it uh, outside and I forgot the words. I've written some of them down. The Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. As long as you only sing songs like this, may God's grace be on you. This is exactly what happens. And as long as it's got, you know, as long as it's contemporary, then we're good. We will keep coming. I mean, this is the difference, really. The older folks, when it comes to hymns, they just typically get angry. The younger folks, they just don't come or they leave. But neither of those, neither of those is doing what music is actually supposed to do, which is point to God. And it's this beautiful, it is supposed to be this great point saying, look, we are all together here and we are different. Some of us like this kind of music, some of us like that. We are young and we are old we have different tastes and all those, but how glorious that we are all here together singing these songs of praise to God. But rather than it becoming the pointer, we slowly but surely make it the God. And we can tell because of the fury that occurs. We aren't willing more often than not to compromise as we are called to do. Any good thing the building, we're going to start talking a lot more about the building and, and, and what we want to do. Well, the building is a great thing. It can point to God, but goodness knows it can also become a God, right? Where we have to like, keep this thing nice and neat and clean and, and make sure that, you know, that, it, that it stays distant from those in the community rather than pointing to God in the midst of the community. Uh, the great banquet, right? It can, it can easily become a God, right? And, and sometimes it can become its own thing, right? Which is why the leaders are constantly trying to say, no, 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 you need to, after going through an experience like this, get engaged in a small group, get engaged in a church. It cannot become an end in itself. Anything, baptism, it doesn't matter what it is, anything that is good that is not Jesus can easily become an idol. And we must always be paying attention to it because it is the allure of all of us because it is so tangible. And yet, we cannot worship the pointer. We must Worship the king. So how do we wrestle with this? Well, a couple things it seems to me. One is this. One is to pay attention to what make us, makes us angry, especially when it comes to issues of faith. You see, the problem is, we've talked about this, the problem is that whenever you get mad about some religious practice, it always feels righteous. It always feels like righteous indignation. And more often than not, that just means that you have an angry person who's also very happy because they're so joyful that they're so mad. I can guarantee you these Pharisees had a certain amount of joy in the fact that they were righteously indignant. We're standing up for the Sabbath. Doesn't that feel good? It feels amazing. But maybe, maybe it's actually Jesus, as it was for the Pharisees, just trying to kind of say, hey, antagonize a bit, which is what Jesus was doing, no question, because it is through oftentimes this antagonism that perhaps it slows us down so that we begin to say, well, wait, are we beginning to elevate this thing, whatever it is, over Jesus? But now I also want to be clear about something else, which is that just because you never get angry about anything, it also may not mean that you're in the right place. 
You see, here's the hard thing about scripture that we have to always keep in mind. It's the Pharisees that we hear about, but you know what? There's a whole slew of people who aren't even around. You know why? Because they don't care. So they may be like us with Sabbath. Oh, who cares what you do with the Sabbath? I don't care, it doesn't matter. Oh, who cares what you do with communion? We don't really care. We're so good, we just don't care. And one of the things I love about ZPC and that what we just continue to do is as ZPCers, as I say, they have opinions and they are not afraid to share them. And that's a gift because it means they actually care. And so we have to cultivate and continue to be a people. Yeah, sometimes we get angry because we think this thing is so important. It's almost godlike. And then we begin to say, oh, okay, are we holding this up a little bit too high? Which brings us to the last thing, which is, of course, the most important thing that we can do, which is to continually, as individuals and as a church, keep going back to Jesus. It's the whole reason we're going through the gospel of Luke. We have to continually, as one person said, be renewed by our confrontation with Jesus. I said this the very first Sunday. We go through Luke so that we can continue to remember the Jesus who confronted the Pharisees because we know that the Jesus who confronted the Pharisees is the same Jesus that confronts us. Again, our natural tendency will always to begin to lift up the tangible pointer rather than the God whom we sometimes cannot see or touch. And so we look at this Jesus and we are continually confronted by him. And here's the good news, that when we do so, all of a sudden those things that are pointing, they have new life. Again, Sabbath, all of a sudden, for the Pharisees, it could have been this thing that they remembered that gave them freedom, not this thing that enchained them. Communion becomes this opportunity to say, that's right, we are broken by others or for others, just as Christ has been broken for us. We begin to feel that Zoe life, that, that meaningful life that comes from that. All of, a, all of a sudden, community really does become this thing where you think, I can't believe that this person whom I don't really agree with on things, we're walking together. This must be about Jesus. Jesus, God becomes more and more alive. All of a sudden, all of these things, you're right, that we have been holding back, this music, and we're like, oh my goodness, there's a great feeling when you're able to look at somebody else and say, I cannot believe this person likes that song. And yet, because of this, you begin to see, wow, the kingdom of God is vast. It's amazing. And we begin to point to Jesus because we're not just pointing to our own individual taste. Everything begins to take on the life that it is supposed to when you are always certain that the thing to which we are worshiping is God and God alone. Jesus and Jesus alone. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. In so doing, might these practices which we have been given point us to the salvation of the world where life and life eternal is found. For Christ and for his kingdom. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, it is easier for us to keep the Pharisees at a distance because it means that we don't have to look at ourselves. 
But we know, God, that you have not called us here. You have not called forth the scripture so that we can simply just continually say, well, thank goodness we're not them. Thank God we don't look like them. And yet when we can be honest, Lord, and as we said last Sunday, when we can repent and continually turn to you, there is life abundant. And so may we continue to be a people who are not afraid to have Jesus come and tear down those idols that are around us. That we might live more fully for you. It's in your name we pray, amen.